Good morning and happy Sabbath. We're happy that you've taken the time to join us this morning in worshiping. Maybe you're sitting at home on your couch. Maybe you're still in bed in your pajamas. doesn't matter. The awesome part is that we're still worshiping the same God, even if it's not in the same way. And we're happy that you're here. If you'd like to continue to support Marietta Adventist Church during this time, feel free to visit us at MarietaAdventist.org and you can give there. But again, we're happy that you've taken the time to join us in worshiping this morning. We hope that you receive a blessing. Good morning and happy Sabbath. I'm glad that you've joined us for our unusual worship service today. And although we can't be in the same place physically and worship God together, uh, we can worship Him virtually together. And I believe that God, because He's an omnipresent God, is with each and every one of you wherever you are. With your, as you sit on a couch or as you're at your home, maybe you're eating breakfast at the breakfast table right now. Wherever you are, God is there with you and we're worshiping together. Hey, I'm not sure exactly how you're watching this video. You might have gotten the church email this morning that had a link to the Vimeo uh, page and you're watching the video on Vimeo. Others of you might be watching on Facebook uh, during our Facebook watch party. But however you're watching it, let's be honest. The world doesn't need more content. Some of you may have already watched Pioneer Memorial Church's live stream, or maybe you've worshipped with the Loma Linda Church and their broadcast, or maybe you've watched some other church somewhere. We don't need more content. So this morning, this sermon is a little bit different. It's not live streamed. This is a video recording, and it's intentional so that you can interact with it in one way or another. If you're watching this video on Vimeo, there are specific and intentional times during this video where you can uh, answer the questions that I'll ask you. You might journal them down. You might discuss them with your family as you talk with them. Um, if you're watching on our Facebook watch party, there's a comment section for you to interact with other church members, which is kind of neat because typically in our church sanctuary, as you're listening to a sermon, you don't get the chance to talk about what's happening. So who knows what you're going to say? It makes me a little bit nervous, but whatever you do, I'm sure that it will be fun and interactive for our church. So as we begin, I invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, this morning, as we worship you in our own separate places, we know that you are there. May our thoughts be directed towards you, and may we understand you better at the end of this time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're like me, even if you're busy doing other things, there's a part of your brain that is thinking about COVID-19 coronavirus. Maybe it's because it's just saturation through media or everything that you see. I mean, eight out of 10 Facebook posts have something to do with it, whether it's a meme or something funny or someone that is worried about it. It's just everywhere. Uh, I can't stop getting text messages and messenger notifications from church members and others that want me to hear the latest and the greatest. They want me to see what the CDC has said. They want me to know what President Trump has said. They, they want me to continually be updated with 
even our Adventist church president Ted Wilson's um, comments and his statements or, or that the general conference session has been postponed to next year. It's everywhere. You can't even go on a walk without hearing about it. Uh, uh, just the other day on one of our many, many walks to get out of the house and enjoy this beautiful weather, we saw our neighbor across the street, Shannon. She's a respiratory therapist that uh, works at several different hospitals, and she says it is craziness out at the hospitals. Uh, different hospitals have different policies. Some hospital workers uh, feel safe in some hospitals and not safe in others. Um, and then there's a shortage of masks, so she's got fear about that. She says it is just absolutely craziness, and she says she feels like she is fighting a battle with an unseen enemy. It'd be one thing if you could see the enemy coming, that you knew what it looked like, that you could watch it come, and that you could be prepared for it. But it's completely different when the enemy is unseen. I mean, we're talking a virus here. We're talking germs. You can't see them. You can't touch them. You don't really know what they look like. You don't know if you're breathing them in or if, you're, if they're floating around in the air. It's an enemy that is invisible. For the next 30 seconds, I'm going to ask you a question and I'll give you a chance to respond. If you're watching this on Vimeo, maybe you'll just talk about it with those that you're watching this with. Or maybe if you're watching this by yourself, you'll just jot it down on a piece of paper or you'll process the answer to this question. If you're watching on our Facebook watch party, I encourage you to comment in the comment section so you can interact with those that are also watching with you. So here's the question that I'd like you to talk about. What is your go-to response when you're fighting something that you cannot see? So often, when you can't see what you're fighting, fear becomes the overwhelming emotion. And it's not because you have weak faith or because you have a loose connection with Jesus. Let's be honest, right now, pretty much everyone has anxiety, an overload of anxiety with fear of the future or wondering what's going to happen. As I was thinking about what passage in the Bible uh, would fit for this time, I, I thumbed through the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, the beginning, there's such wonderful stories that gave me strength in my faith in God. Uh, some of these stories I learned as a kid. I mean, you've got the end part of Joseph's life as his family becomes this dominant nation. You've got the beginning stages of Moses' life as he's, uh, as a baby, he's born and he's floating in the bulrushes in his homemade baby yacht and he's saved. You've got Moses as he talks to God through a burning bush, uh, and God shows him miraculous wonders to Moses and to Pharaoh. And as the children of Israel are being dominated in their slavery by the Egyptians, their cries for help are heard by God. In fact, here's what God tells them in Exodus chapter 6, verse 8. He says, 
I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. That's a promise. And when God gives a promise, you can count on it. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when He says a promise, you can count on His promises. But what's crazy is that as Moses goes and tells the people that God is going to deliver them and to free them from their bondage, they miss it. Here's what Exodus 6 verse 9 says. They did not listen to him because of their discouragement and their harsh labor. They were so focused on their situation and on their frustration and on their domination and in their bad condition that they missed the one that could give them salvation and that could take them to the promised destination. Why is it that when we find ourselves in a frustrating, demoralizing situation, that we get caught up with only seeing the problems and we miss the promises? Why is it that when we feel like we are chained down, we forget about the one that breaks every chain? I mean, He's the God of the universe. He's, he knows the end from the beginning. He's the one that has a, a promise to give you hope and a future. He knows what's going to happen. And when He speaks, things happen. So the story continues as God uses Moses as his mouthpiece. And Moses goes before Pharaoh and asks that the children of Israel be let go to worship their God. And God begins to send the the plagues as Pharaoh's already hardened heart is shown and seen by all. Plague number one, God turns the Nile River into blood. That's disgusting. You can't take a bath without bathing in blood. You can't drink a glass of water because it's blood. It's filthy water, it's bloody water, and it's gross. Plague number two, God covers the land with frogs. Frogs in your cereal. Frogs hopping out from underneath your covers of your bed. That's frogs in the bathroom. Frogs in your car. That's terrible. Plague number three, God covers the land with gnats. This might be the worst one to me because I can't handle it when one of those little gnats flies into my ear and it sounds like... Ah, it's the worst. Plague number four, God sends flies to cover everything. Uh, There's not a fly swatter big enough to, to kill all those flies. Plague number five, all the livestock of the Egyptians dies, yet God keeps all the livestock of the Israelites alive. Plague number six, God gives the Egyptians boils so badly that when Moses goes back to talk to Pharaoh, all the wise men, they can't stand because it's so painful. That's how bad the boils were. Plague number seven, God sends hail to kill everything that wasn't covered. That's animals, that's that's crops, that's humans. If it was out in the open, hail killed it. Plague number eight, God sent a locust swarm that ate everything in their path. Interestingly enough, right now, there is a swarm of locusts of biblical proportions that is moving across Africa. In fact, here is the news report from just about a month ago. The worst locust crisis in decades is ravaging East Africa, threatening the food supply for millions of people. Kenya, Somalia, and Ethiopia are at the center of this latest outbreak. You can see in this video just how massive the locust swarms have been across the region. These bugs have infested farmland and destroyed crops. Farmers are calling on the international community to help prevent a food crisis. Plague number nine, God hid the sun and everything was dark. Now, I don't know about you, 
but with this self-quarantining and social distancing and spending a lot of time at my home away from everyone, if the electricity went out so that there was complete darkness, it would also mean that there wouldn't be any internet. And that would be the worst plague of all time. So wherever you're watching this, if it's on Vimeo or Facebook, take the next 30 seconds to discuss and answer this question. You can write your responses in the comment section if you're watching on Facebook. Here's the question. Which plague do you think was the worst and why? I don't know if one of the plagues is worse than the others, although whichever plague you chose as the worst one isn't as bad as the last one. God tells Moses that this last plague is the one that would allow the children to go free and that would set them free from their bondage into the freedom that they deserve. And while some may think that God is a God that kills babies for no other reason than to manipulate a human, that's not how I see it. The Bible tells us that God is a God of love, and that has to be the lens through which we view God. Love is His character. It's what drives His everything. And the way I see it, God gave Pharaoh and all of Egypt nine chances and warnings and pleadings for them to turn and obey God. And yet, because of their choice, the natural cause or the natural consequence of distancing yourself from God and disobeying Him, the natural consequence is death. And that would happen to all the firstborns in Egypt. Ellen White, my favorite Bible commentator, she writes in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, she says, God is long-suffering and plenteous in mercy. He has a tender care for the beings formed in His image. If the loss of their harvests and their flocks and herds had brought Egypt to repentance, the children would not have been smitten. But the nation had stubbornly resisted the divine command, and now the final blow was about to fall. Listen, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. He's still the same God of mercy now, like He has always been. He loves to show mercy, and His mercy and His patience continues with you and me as He patiently calls us to live a life that honors Him and that is full of obedience. And as the terrible day of death approached, Moses was supposed to give special instructions to the children of Israel. It was supposed to begin on the 10th day of the new year. Think January 10. All the families of the children of Israel were supposed to go and select a lamb, a perfect lamb, one that had no blemish, that didn't have a crippled leg or a lazy eye, a perfect lamb. And this is where the symbolism starts to get kind of um, beautiful because yes, that lamb is a foreshadowing. It's a prophetic picture of the lamb of God that comes and dies and his life-giving blood gives salvation to all humanity. But there's even more because God gives special instructions to use the whole lamb 
not just part of the lamb. In fact, if the lamb was too large for a family, then they were instructed to connect with one of their neighbors to find another family that could use this lamb too because they had to use the whole lamb. And as this lamb is the prophetic picture of the lamb of God, Jesus, that would die for the salvation of all humanity, it's kind of an all-or-nothing thing, too, even for us, even today. See, Jesus is that lamb, and he continually calls on us to take him, all of him, as the full ruler of your life. He doesn't just say, hey, come and, and take the parts that you want. Take the stuff that you need, but leave the stuff that you don't like. How often do we just take Jesus for his grace? But we refuse to take the judgment part of a connected life with Him. We love Him for the forgiveness. We love Him for the grace. But so often we don't want anything to do with Him when He calls us to live a life that honors Him, that is more aligned to Him. We just take part of Him. And God gives us that symbolic picture of taking all of Jesus, the whole thing, the grace and the judgment, as He instructs these Israelites to take the whole lamb, not just part of it. But let's think about this whole neighborly thing again. Sharing with your neighbor. The way I read the story, neighbors came together in this horrific event that is about to take place, and they shared with each other. Now, I've got fantastic neighbors. All around me are great neighbors. Uh, just across the street and down the hill, my neighbor Ed, he texted me the other day. In fact, most of the neighbors have connected with us and said, hey, if there's anything we can do to help you, let us know. Ed, he texted me and he said, if you want to borrow movies, I have a ton on DVD, especially for kids. See, Ed knows that I have awesome but very active boys. And so he uh, reached out to me to say, hey, I've got this extensive movie collection that you can use. And while I am like most parents that don't want my kids to be on the screen as, as little as possible, uh, I do agree with Sean Marotta, who tweeted last week, well, I know one piece of medical advice I won't be following in these times, and it is the American Academy of Pediatric, Pediatric Guidelines for Screen Time. But how cool is it that I have a neighbor that cares about me during these times, that wants to share what he has with me? Uh, just the other day, another neighbor just up the street, a couple houses up, her name's Heather. She texted Jennifer and she says, Hi, Jennifer. During these crazy times we currently live in, if you need anything at all, please let us know. We all have to stick together. Be well, stay healthy, and safe. I've got great neighbors. In fact, my neighbor straight across the street, Shannon's husband, Chris, I noticed that he has a, a stash of Mountain Dew. And I know that if for some reason the water got shut off or turned into blood, that he would let me have part of his stockpile of the Nectar of the Gods Mountain Dew so that I could stay well hydrated. For the next 30 seconds, answer this question. What would you be willing to share with your neighbors if they needed something? And Moses continues with the special instructions for the Israelites. They were to take the lamb 
and slaughter it, being careful not to break any of its bones. Remember the prophetic picture of Jesus dying without broken bones. The lamb was not to be split or separated. It was to be roasted whole. Again, this completeness and this wholeness, which symbolizes the wholeness and completeness of Jesus' sacrifice to us, which covers our unrighteousness completely and wholly. And after the lamb was slaughtered, the father of each home, the priest of the house, was supposed to take hyssop, this bushy plant from the mint family, and he was to dip it in the blood of the lamb and paint it on the door frame, the doorposts and the header. And I find it interesting that God doesn't ask them to put it on the threshold of the door, the doorway, the, the bottom part but only on the doorposts and the door frame, the top, the header, as almost like he wanted the significance of this blood to be seen by its great value. It's not something that you paint on the roadway or the floor that you walk across or that you trample on. This is life-giving, life-saving blood, and it should be this symbol of value that's around a doorpost, not just something that you walk upon. The blood was around the entryway, the place where someone would enter into salvation and safety. But think for a moment how each family member must have felt as the father is painting the doorway with blood. Everyone knew what was coming that night. Everyone knew that this symbolic gesture, gesture of painting blood was of real importance because death would be knocking on that same door later that night. And I can only imagine what each member of the family was thinking as the father, the priest, was painting their doorway. Take a minute and share how you would feel from your perspective. If you're a father, how would you feel painting the doorpost? If you're a firstborn, how would you feel with your head on the chopping block? If you're a second, third, fourthborn, how would you feel thinking of your, your brother? If you're a mother, what are you thinking? If you were there eating the lamb supper with your family, waiting for the unseen, invisible killer plague to come, would you be terrified? You know it's coming. You know it's a killer. You just can't see it. And why is it that when we start fighting an invisible enemy, that we forget about the invisible God. He's the one that holds the world in His hands. He's the one that gives you every breath that you ever take. He's the one that knows the end from the beginning. He's the one that has plans to give you a hope and a future. Why do we cower in fear when God challenges us to stand in faith? And at what point does fear of the invisible turn into faith that is visible? 
the author of Hebrews, he starts the faith chapter by saying these words in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is 100% believing in the invisible. It's 100% believing in the unseen. It's believing in the hope of a promise. It's having assurance that's in something that you know is there. You just can't hear it. You can't feel it. You can't see it, but you know it's real. That's what faith is. And it's when we make a conscious decision to put our faith into action that powerful things happen. The fathers have painted the doorposts of their families' houses with, these, with this blood, this saving blood from the Lamb. And we pick up the story as Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets. She says this. She says, The father and priest of the household sprinkled the blood upon the doorpost and joined his family within the dwelling. In haste and silence, the Paschal lamb was eaten. In awe, the people prayed and watched the heart of the eldest born, from the strong man down to the little child, throbbing with indefinable dread. Fathers and mothers clasped in their arms their loved firstborns as they thought of the fearful stroke that was to fall that night. But no dwelling of Israel was visited by the death-dealing angel. The sign of blood, the sign of a Savior's protection, was on their doors and the destroyer entered not. Yes, the Israelites had fear. But because they put their faith in action, they were saved. In the midst of their fear, they put their faith in the invisible God. And as they put their faith in action, faith won. Faith always wins. And I believe that no matter how high your fear is right now, as you deal with anxiety, as you deal with stress, that as you put your fear aside and put your faith in the invisible God, that your faith will win too. I've purchased two homes in my lifetime. The first was eight years ago in Decula, Georgia. Jennifer and I had just finished our seminary experience and we were headed to our first solo district church. And we were excited about it. We'd saved, scrimped, and, and did everything possible to get a, ha a healthy, fatty down payment for a house. And we were ready. It was time. In fact, it was perfect timing because it was God's timing. He knew from before I was born when I would be buying my first house. And He enabled it to happen at the right time when the market was just coming up. And so the market was flooded with foreclosures. And so we went house shopping and we wore out Zillow because we were on there all day long, every day, looking for just the right house. And it finally came down to two houses. There was a house that our realtor, Courtney Wardy, had shown us in the town of Sugar Hill. It was an older house, but it had been uh, refurbished and it was pretty nice on the inside. Uh, we really liked that house. But then there was this other house over in Decula. It was the house that I thought had most potential. It was a nice brick house. The insides weren't as nice. Uh, the previous owner that had been foreclosed on, they'd ripped out all the appliances. They'd pretty much destroyed the carpet. It needed a lot of work on the inside. But the way I saw it, it had a lot of potential for a big win for my family. And so as we talked about this, we went back and forth, discussing back and forth which house would be better. At one point, Jennifer really was leaning towards the Sugar Hill house. Um, I tended toward the Decula house, and we talked back and forth, back and forth. And at one point, 
as we're trying to figure out how we want to spend a whole lot of money, as we were ready to make this massive decision for our family, Jennifer said these words. She said, Matt, I can't see what this house can look like, but I trust you. And if you think this is the right one, then let's buy it. That's faith in action. That's faith in the invisible. She couldn't see what I could see. She saw a project and I saw a finished project. I saw a house that would be a fantastic investment that would give us a win. And because of her faith in something she couldn't see, her faith won. In fact, we bought that house for $100,000, which was so much money to us then. And four years later, when we moved here to Marietta, God allowed us to sell that house for $216,000. That is a big win. And that is how faith wins too. Putting your trust and your faith in the invisible. Take the next 30 seconds and see if you can come up with a response to this question. During these uncertain times, how can you put your faith into action? Today, as you grapple with your faith and your fear, may your faith grow in the invisible God that has a much better plan than anything you could ever think or imagine. Let's pray together. God, we trust you in these difficult times. As we don't know the future, we know you, and that's what matters. And so today we're placing our trust in you, our faith in the invisible God. May our faith grow with you. May it win because we've placed it in you. I pray for the Marietta Seventh-day Adventist Church family and those others that are watching right now. May you encourage each of us. God, we love you and we can't wait to see you. In Jesus' name, amen.